Please join me in a word of prayer before we get back into the word. Gracious God, we do thank you, uh, even for that reminder that we just heard and saw, that though the wrong seems oft, often so strong, you, God, are the ruler yet. Thank you, God, for renewing our minds today, refreshing our souls, and pointing us back to you. And I pray, God, that this time in your word would continue to do just that, to show us how awesome and excellent and wonderful you are as we look at the next passage in creation in Genesis 1. I ask your blessing on this time and on everyone here and anyone else who hears this message today. I pray, God, that your word will once again accomplish the purpose for which you send it out. And uh, we will thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn with me to the text in Genesis chapter 1. Shouldn't be too hard to find. Genesis chapter 1. And before we get into the passage today, as we continue on in this sermon series of God's story of beginnings, it is God's story and it is history as we've gone over. I want to just start with a very basic outline of days one through six of creation. And today we're only going to get through days two through four. I was a little bit ambitious and thought we could go all the way to five, but that's not the way it turned out um, this week. So we're covering three days today, days two through four. Um, But I want to start by just giving kind of like a, just a a very um, broad outline here. And one might say that there's two phases of the creation week. Okay, in a, just a general kind of way. Um, phase one is the first three days, days one through three. And it's like God creates and prepares the earth for habitation. Okay, this is like the beginnings of his work. And then the second phase is the, the, the three last days, days four through six. God, after the first three days, he then fills and populates what started, as we saw in verse two last week, what was formless and void He's, this is the, the finishing of his work at the end of the creation week, days four through six. So I just want you to note um, some correlations between these days. Okay, so think of it. Day one, we saw last week, created light, right? Day four, which we'll get to today, creates the, the luminaries, okay, the sun, moon, stars. On day two, he creates the sea and heaven, on day five, see in the sky, you might, you might say. Hey, day five, he fills it with fish and fowl, right? Fish and birds. And then on day three, which is, again, the first phase, right? Part of the first phase. He, he creates dry land. Okay? Land emerges. We're going to see that today. With its plants. On day six, he fills that land up with creatures, land creatures. And also, at the end of day six, what does he create? Us, thank you, Ruth. <laughs> Us, men and women, male and female, which we are going to get to eventually. So I like outlines. I like just, you know, if, if you ever have trouble remembering, um, oh, I can't remember the order of the days, that's a helpful thing, right? Just to kind of see the parallels there and see the correlation. One, four, two, five, three, six, right? So God prepares it for habitation, then he fills it up. Uh, phase one, phase two. Okay, um, Umberto Casudo, who is a Hebrew scholar, 
Let me just uh, give you a quote from him. He says, in the first stage were created the three sections of the inanimate world. That's the way he puts it. Inanimate, followed by vegetation. That is, all the created entities that cannot move by themselves. And in the second stage, there were made, in precisely parallel order to that of the first, the mobile beings. To wit, on the fourth day, the luminaries, the moving bodies in which the light formed on the first day is crystallized. And on the fifth and sixth days, in like manner, the creatures that correspond to the works of the second and third days, end quote. All right, so just to put a cap on that, that's what he says. So we are going to get into days two through four of creation today, verses six through 19. We read the whole chapter plus the first few verses of chapter two a few Sundays ago. So for the sake of time, I'm not going to read all 14 verses, um, but let's take it section by section, okay? So day two... Day two is verses six through eight, and I'll read that for us right now. It says, Then God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. God made the expanse and separated the waters which were below the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse, and it was so. God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning a second day. So once again, God spoke, as, as Pastor Bill was praying, simply spoke it, and that's what happens. Things come into existence, right? Only God can do that. And notice again, then, this is in sequence, it's what happened next, after the first day, what he said, what he did, following. Okay, narrative history. And it says that he said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. So what is this expanse? Right, maybe it's been a while since some of you have been in Genesis or have um, thought about this, but this has uh, otherwise been translated firmament. Okay, basically, it's the atmosphere. It's the livable, breathable atmosphere for plant and animal and human life. God said that this expanse, this firmament, was to be in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. So it was like this space that divided up the waters that covered the watery earth. We saw and heard last Sunday about just uh, what the earth was like in those in that very first moments of creation on day one. So Douglas Kelly says, Thus, on the second day of creation, the world seems to be something like an undifferentiated mass or, quote, an original amorphous matter. Perhaps it would be comparable to having a room full of mud and water and heat, pulsating like a moving blob. In it, there would have been no breathing space. In other words, all the material elements were present as well as energy. Genesis 1, verse 1, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But the dividing and organizing of these elements, which would be necessary to make the earth habitable, had not yet occurred. It was, to use the old Greek concept, a chaos and not yet a cosmos, end quote. Okay, so this is the process of creation that's being described here. Notice, God made the expanse. Okay, he, need, he needed to make it. He needed to create it this firmament, this, this space, this atmosphere. He speaks, and what is produced okay, from all these elements and gases and material, what he produces is breathing space, 
an atmosphere that is habitable, becoming habitable. By the way, there's no hint in the text of needing evolutionary processes in millions and billions of years. It was not a natural process that spontaneously occurred over long ages and eons and processes. The point here is that God made it. He made it on day two. There's no need for scientific or naturalistic explanation of how, right? Because there is no explanation for the supernatural. There's no explanation for God's miraculous creation and acts. It's another in a series of miracles happening on creation week at the very beginning of the world that God has graciously revealed to us. And so it goes on there and says, it separated the waters which were below the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse. So the waters below, I think we can guess, surmise, think, consider what that is. The water, at least a large portion of it, that continued to cover the earth. The waters which were just all over the earth, but it's separated from the waters above. And so what is that? What are the waters above? Well, some have said, who are creationists like we are, who believe in a literal six-day creation, um, that it's a, a massive water canopy that extended up high into the atmosphere. And part of their thinking in this is that um, it was used to shield people from the later sun's harmful rays once the sun is created, and it regulated the climate at a perfect temperature for life. And other benefits that explain the longevity of life on Earth. You know, when we read the Genesis and it says that people lived for 900 years and 800 years and several, several hundred years. Okay, so um, the other part of their explanation is that when the flood came, and this was like kind of what came down, part of what came down during the flood, this huge canopy of water that was surrounding the earth and just came down as part of uh, the flood and the destruction of the earth. Um, Others would say, who are also young earth, six-day, literal uh, creationists like we are, um, that is more like a, a mist or a vapor or even the clouds that are continually floating above the earth's surface, somewhat like today, um, maybe just in a little bit of a different form or thicker or, or whatever. But, um, you know, I would say that it's not certain. It could be either one. I, I just, uh, I'm, I'm not sure that the text is clear on that or any other text in the Bible tell us for sure it's a, a canopy or for sure it's just a vapor or mist uh, that is surrounding the earth. Uh, God doesn't give exact details on this, so um, I'll leave it up to you to research that on your own and decide. But um, God did speak it. And it says, it was so. It just happened. That's what happened. And uh, lastly there, it says, God called the expanse heaven. He called it heaven. Again, that naming thing, right? He names it, comes into existence. He gives it its essence. And he also shows his authority over it. And he calls it, calls it heaven. Heaven. Which heaven is that, right? When we read the Bible, we see heaven in a lot of different places. Well, I would say this is just the general sky, the general atmosphere, okay, versus the, the interstellar um, space uh, or versus God's abode, right? God's dwelling place is in heaven, as the Bible says. And so um, that's what he called this, this firmament, this expanse. And so that was evening. There was evening. There was morning, a second day. This is the same words as in verse 5, indicating the same 
cycle, the same pattern, same 24-hour day. This was a second day. And so, once again, every time you see that day, that word yom, that word used in Hebrew with the ordinal, with the, the number uh, description with it, um, it's, it's always referring to a 24-hour day. Because the word day can be used in different, different ways, right? Um, just describing like general day, like a, like a, a time, uh, the day of the Lord, okay? Um, sometimes that's a, talking about one particular day. Sometimes it means a general time frame. So there's different ways, but um, when it's within that construction, it always means a literal 24-hour day. So as we go to day three, notice that some of you might have picked up on this, but day two is the only day that the text omits that God saw that it was good. Okay, day two is the only day that's missing that. And so I think that's probably indicating that things are still in progress. Okay, the work is not yet complete. There's still work yet to be done. Okay, this is day two out of six. And so we're still in the first phase as we go to day three, which is verses nine to 13. And I'll read this next section for us, day number three of creation. Can you believe we're just like learning about what happened these thousands of years ago? Okay, as much as God wanted to reveal to us, this is what we have. So verses nine to 13. Then God said, Let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the gathering of the waters he called seas. And God saw that it was what? It was good. Verse 11. Then God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees on the earth bearing fruit after their kind with seed in them. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed after their kind, and trees bearing fruit with seed in them after their kind. And God saw that it was what? It was good. And there was evening, there was morning, a third day. So this is day three. And it starts with him speaking once again. Very simple, very clear. Then God said, his power is such that that's all it takes for it to happen. Things to come into existence. Okay? Incredible, massive, momentous things. Okay? This is all part of his story. And he's so kind to give it to us, to tell us. And in this case, he's basically ordering the waters that are on the earth to gather into one place, and he brings the dry land out. He's separating the water from the land. So this is the third... <clears throat> The third separation described in the text already, right? I think I mentioned this last Sunday, but day one, God divided light from darkness. Day two, which we saw just now, water below from the waters above. And then day three now, the land from the sea. So basically, land emerges for the first time. Oh, thank you. Land emerges for the first time out of the water. And this might describe one huge continent, one mass, as the waters were gathered into one place. Okay, many geologists, you might be interested in know, believe that today's continents show evidence of once being a single mass which has drifted apart. Today's continental separation it might have occurred during the flood 
Because Genesis 7 verse 11 says, all the fountains of the great deep were broken up. Genesis 7, right? That's part of the flood description, okay? So maybe that's why we have uh, separate continents now. But it's also possible that this land on day three might have been already multiple separate continents and masses. Because verse 10 says that the gathering of the waters together were seas, right? That's plural. So this could mean that even though they were in one place, they might have been contained in many distinct but interconnected basins, um, like we see today. But in any case, a land mass or masses, um, somehow, incredibly, okay, just try to picture that. Okay? Uh, this is emerging out of the depths of the global sea. It's pushing out, pushing up, out of the surface of the water, all by God's omnipotent word. And I'm going to read Job 38 to you. Verse 8 says, as uh, once again Job um, is encountered by God, God appears to him. In Job 38, verse 8, and he asks, when the morning star sang, um, he says, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? In verse 8, he says, or who enclosed the sea with doors when bursting forth, it went out from the womb when I made a cloud, its garment, and thick darkness, its swaddling band, and I placed boundaries on it and set a bolt and doors, and I said, Thus far you shall come, but no farther, and here shall your proud waves stop. And so this is God just describing um, what was happening there, just when the seas would stop, the oceans, the waters would stop, and the land would begin, and um, just uh, incredible to try to picture that. You can jot down Psalm 104, verses 5 through 9 as well. I won't take the time to read that one. Psalm 104, 5 through 9. Just um, wonderful scripture to support uh, what's happening here on day three. And so, it was so. Simply, it was so. Um, it doesn't sound like a process of thousands or millions of years whatsoever. And so... God, in his authority over his creation, calls the dry land earth, and he called the gathered waters seas. And uh, once again, it's God naming things. This is a pattern, right? Noticing the pattern uh, of all of this? this is, uh, we're going to continue to see it on um, the next, uh, next Sunday. But uh, the table is being set here to fill his creation with living things, okay? Like the outline I gave you earlier. Um, the other thing that takes place on day three is the creation of vegetation, on the earth, verses 11 and 12. And he simply says once again, Elohim, God, says, let the earth sprout vegetation. And once again, it was so. It was so. He just says it, and out comes just all this stuff, right? Don't you wish gardening was that easy? Those of you who are into gardening, okay, it was easy for God to do this. Um, he did not need any long, evolving, natural processes. He decreed it. He spoke it all, vegetation, plants, trees, into existence. It was not chance, it was not random processes, it was not disorder becoming order, it was not simple becoming irreducibly complex, it certainly was not an accidental byproduct of evolutionary chemical reactions, just all happening by themselves on their own. And this was the immediate result at the end of day three of God's sovereign command. Psalm 148 says, He commanded, 
and they were created. Psalm 33 says, For he spoke, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. So I want you to notice there, it says, it says, uh, with seed in them, plants yielding seed, bearing fruit after the trees, bearing fruit on their kind with seed in them. So we want to observe that plant life did not evolve from different kinds of organisms. Okay, all the plants and trees and vegetation were fully grown. This is very important. They were fully mature. Okay, they contained seeds in them to be able to grow other plants and trees. God is very specific about telling us that, and he does it um, a number of times. Pastor John MacArthur, he writes, quote, One rather obvious fact ignored by many is that the universe was mature when it was created. God created it with the appearance of age. When he created trees and animals, for example, he created them as mature, fully developed organisms. According to the biblical account, he did not create just seeds and cells. He certainly did not plant a single cell program to evolve itself into a variety of creatures. He made trees with already mature fruit. And again, end quote. This says, verse, let the earth sprout vegetation, fruit trees on the earth bearing fruit after their kind. And so we can add Adam and Eve to that, right? He, he created Adam and Eve as full-grown, matured adults. And so you just think about even the, the New Testament and Jesus making wine out of water, right? He completely skips the fermentation process, the aging process that's required to, to make wine. And they said it was the best wine, right? Which means it was, it was mature. It was well-seasoned already, just in an instant when he turned that water into wine. Uh, it was an instantaneous creation, and yet it, it seemed like it was, it was very old, aged. So it's the same with the, the bread and the fish. When he turned those little amounts of bread and fish into enough to feed 15, 20,000 people, okay, it was already cooked, it was already ready to eat. Okay, they didn't have to make a campfire and, and cook it and, and eat it. Okay, these are miracles, just like in Genesis chapter 1. And the appearance of age already, already ready. So it says, after their kind, once again. So we need to keep um, just reinforcing these things, right? Um, because just the world and schools and education system and science and everything, so-called science teaches so many different things, but plants cannot bring forth anything other than what they've inherited from their parents. Trees can only produce similar trees. And we'll see with animals next week, after their kind, the same thing. Even crossbreeding does not produce a new species. Um, after their kind, right? Carrot, a carrot seed planted into the ground is not going to grow into chili peppers. Okay? Um, even after thousands or millions or billions of years, an apple tree is going to produce apples, not oranges, not pears. And most obviously, but very importantly, once again, plant life cannot produce animal life. Plants reproduce after their own kind, just like the text says. These are fundamental genetic principles which 
completely contradict evolutionary theory and teaching. So I just want us to picture what's going on here. The whole earth, okay, just uh, all of a sudden, bursting forth, okay, coming out, um, coming alive with plants, all sorts of plants, all sorts of trees, all sorts of vegetation, with all its colors and smells and lushness and variety. Um, just amazing just to, to think about that day and that moment in day three, what God is doing. And let me just add real quickly here. Okay, Listen, God could have done all of this in a millisecond. You know that? One through six, like that. You know, and um, our early church father, Augustine, that was, that was, some people say that he, he didn't believe that the earth was created in six days and it was a lot longer. But they misconstrued what he thought. He actually said, thought it, it, would, it was done in a second and um, less than six days. And so um, the way that God chose to do it was in six days. We're going to get to that uh, as far as the reasons and everything, setting the pattern for us. But this is how he chose to do it. And this is how he chose to, to do things on day three to bring forth vegetation and plant life into the earth. And so verse 13 says, there was evening, there was morning, a third day. So phase one, so to speak, is done. Okay, the preparations for, uh, for making the earth inhabitable, habitable, are being finished. And so we get to the first part of phase two, which is day four. And this is verses 14 through 19. Verses 14 through 19. And uh, yeah, just uh, follow along as I, I read it. It says there in verse 14, Then God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be for lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night, he made the stars also. And God placed them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth and to govern the day and the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was what? Good. There was evening and there was morning, a fourth day. So God speaks again. And this time he commands he declares that there be lights in the expanse of the heavens. And this is when, verse 16 again, God made the two great lights, which are what? The sun and the moon. Okay, and then it says at the end there, and the stars also. Okay, interestingly, it doesn't say that God called or named these two lights. Okay, that's something that is omitted from the text there. Uh, it's omitted from, from Genesis 1, interestingly. Uh, but we understand them to be the sun and the moon due to the obvious context. Um, somebody said that is to uh, not, not give any hint of these, these celestial luminaries uh, being any sort of deity. Um, he doesn't even name them, okay? but, but he puts them out there. So um, anyway, he made these two lights for a few reasons. Verse 14a, to separate the day from the night. We recall from last Sunday, um, on day one, verses four and five, previously he made light, then he separated the light from the darkness and called, he named the light day and the darkness night. 
He already established the concept of a day, even as we believe a 24-hour day, that pattern. And so this was going on for the first few days of creation, first three days, first phase. Now in day number four, the sun and the moon are called into being, called into existence, to distinguish the two periods of day and night. God made them to serve as markers to separate day from night. That separation, once again, which is a, a pattern that we've, I've already pointed out. So that's one reason why he made those two lights. The second one is this, verse 15a, for lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. That's, that's pretty straightforward, right? Uh, whatever that day one light was, um, the sun and the moon now is being given to provide the light on the earth. Okay? So that's, that's another reason. Uh, third reason is verse 14b, and it's for signs and for seasons and for days and years. Okay? And it also says to govern or rule the day and night. Right, So the greater light to, to rule or govern the day and the lesser light, the moon, to govern or rule the night. So just by the way, I mentioned this in care group on Wednesday, but um, I made the point last Sunday that uh, Genesis 1, Genesis, all of it, is, is narrative history, narrative prose. It is exalted narrative prose, uh, if you will. It's unique. It's one of its kind, but it's not poetry, um, like strictly poetry. And so uh, that doesn't mean, though, that, that there's not figurative language in Genesis 1. Okay? There are some things that are figurative. And so the sun and the moon to govern the day and the night, um, once again, there's no hint of those being deities to be worshipped. Okay? And this is what ancient heathen religions do. And even to this day, there are tribes and there are peoples um, all over the globe who are worshiping a sun god or a moon god and uh, superstition and, and all that stuff, even to this day. But this is figurative language saying that it governs the day and the night. And so <clears throat> just uh, to expand on that a little bit, um, just going to share a, a quote from Pastor John MacArthur. And by the way, um, The Battle for the Beginning is the um, name of a, a book that, that he wrote based on his um, Genesis 1 uh, sermon series, and uh, I just highly recommend it to anyone who has not read it. Just lots of good information in there. It's a great resource, but um, let me just share uh, some some quotes here from that book. So he says that, quote, he writes, this speaks of how the heavenly bodies govern our days, nights, months, and years, and so they control our life patterns. The heavenly bodies are presented to us as created objects, No personality traits and devoid of any of the trappings of deity, uh, like I said. And so they rule only in a figurative sense. Their light oversees the earth and governs its passage from day to night. And so regarding the greater light and lesser light, some of you are thinking, wait, the moon. He writes, the sun, of course, radiates light while the moon merely reflects light. But from an earthly perspective, both are light sources. The Genesis account does not aim at a scientific explanation of how the moon gives light. It simply reveals that the divine purpose for the moon was to provide illumination by night. 
And that purpose is perfectly fulfilled through the reflective light cast by the moon. Okay, so hopefully that's helpful for y'all. So regarding the signs, because um, that was the other big purpose uh, for God creating and putting, planting those things up there. Uh, regarding the, the signs, he writes, but the context of Genesis 1 makes clear what kind of signs the stars were to be. They were markers to indicate times and seasons. And in that way, they regulate our lives. They set our calendars. They determine the length of a year. They divide the year into seasons. And they mark the passage of our days and nights. So, In that sense, the whole pulse of human life is governed and regulated by the heavenly bodies. Right? So the sun determines our days. The moon determines the months. And the stars, sun, and moon all determine our seasons and years. Our whole calendar is thus determined by the stars, and even seasonal weather patterns are determined by the sun and moon. So um, hopefully this is helpful for you all if you haven't thought about this in a while. Um, just it's, it's so basic, and yet we don't necessarily think about it all the time. So uh, the last part of the quote here is this. God created the sun, moon, and stars to precise specifications. Think of it. The rotation of the earth on its axis axis is what determines a 24-hour day. The moon's orbits around the earth determine our months. And the earth's revolutions around the sun determine our years. Interestingly, there is nothing in the celestial bodies that determines a week. And yet, humanity universally numbers the calendar by weeks. And where did that come from? Well, the creation week of Genesis 1. It was the period of time in which God created the universe, and ever since, it has governed how humanity marks time, end quote. So it's uh, interesting that after the, the text says all that, at the end of verse 16, it says, he made the stars also. In fact, the verb is not even there. It's the stars also. Um, so it appears that there are no other stars in the universe yet, at least formed stars. Uh, I just find it interesting that, that it's almost like mentioned in passing, kind of, uh, in the text. But uh, there's so much that could be said about all the stars um, in the universe, right? Uh, just how amazing the quantity, first of all, there are. Uh, the scripture that was read earlier today is God determines how many there are and that he names them all. So that in itself should put us in just awestruck fear of who God is, okay? Some people think they, <laughs> they know more than God or they, they know more about salvation or they, they, they love more than God loves. And so it can't be that some people are going to be judged and, and sent to judgment and sent to hell. Um, you know, they, they think they, they know better than God about all of those things. So this stops us in our tracks if that kind of thought ever comes to, to mind. Um, but anyway, Psalm 8, verse 3 and 4, you can jot that one down. We might get to it later, maybe not. But I do want to get to quickly the age of the universe here. That question is, um, when you think about the stars, you, you have to ask it, right? If the universe is only around 10,000 years old or so, uh, give or take, as um, us young earth creationists believe, um, those of us who believe in a 24-hour, literal 24-hour, six-day creation, 
Um, how can we see light that theoretically should have taken millions and millions of years to reach us? Hey, that's um, that's a, a fair question. Um, young Earth creationists, uh, answers in Genesis, and others who who um, believe in six-day creation and a young Earth, uh, helpful, uh, their answer to that, and I'll just uh, share it with you, that, quote, God supernaturally enabled that light to travel such vast expanses of space immediately. If he is capable of designing such an immense and intricate universe in the first place, he is certainly capable of getting the light across the vast reaches of space in accordance with his purpose, end quote. And so his purpose, once again, was to give light to the earth via the sun, which is a star, and to be signs for our seasons and to govern, as I just described before, just to give us our, the regulations of, uh, of our life and the patterns of our life. And so um, Pastor John MacArthur once again offers this. When Adam looked up into the heavens and saw that incredible expanse with millions of bright stars, he was seeing light from millions of light years away, even though those stars had all been there less than four days. The light that he saw was itself part of God's creation, end quote. And so there was many things that we could get into, like technicalities and specifics, but uh, we're going to leave it at that. Um, so once again, if you're curious about that, there's more research and there's great um, resources out there, Answers in Genesis and ICR, Institute of Creation Research, and others. But um, in any case, I want us to notice in, ver- in day four, there's quite a bit more information that there were in day three and day two and day one, right? It's kind of progressively becoming more, um, and that seems to be the pattern. But the commonality, once again, is that God saw that it was what? Good, good. Exception day two, I already pointed it out. But that's his review of the process. It was good. And this is the right perspective, of course. It's the way God saw it. It's the way we should see it as well, right? Shouldn't doubt it. We shouldn't not trust it. We shouldn't think it's wrong. We shouldn't think it's anti-intellectual, anti-science. And we should see it as good, so day three here, the, the, day four, the luminaries way up there in the heavens. They're one of God's good gifts to us, to mankind. And so um, days three and four, the plants, the trees are growing. Um, vegetation, they're going to provide food for animals. And at the end of day six, for the crowning achievement of God's creation, mankind Okay, the lights are also now in their places, ready to serve, to illumine man and woman when they appear on day six. And I just was brought to that verse again, James 1.17, right? Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow, as we sang earlier. And so it's quite amazing to think that God is, at this point, okay, however many thousands of years ago, preparing the stage for his purpose of making a home for man, male and female, human beings who will be his image bearers. And of course, this is all to display his own glory, to magnify the greatness of his own name, to show his almighty power and unfathomable wisdom. 
And so that is the verse in Psalm 8. I'll, I'll just read it right now. I pointed to you before, but Psalm 8, verses 3 and 4. David, the, the psalmist here, is just awestruck when he considers, verse 3, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him? Okay, this is the majesty of God, and um, he is not just transcendent, folks. He is imminent, I-M-M-A-N-E-N-T. He is not just way, way above and, and holy, 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 and we can't get a hold of him. He's also imminent. He's, he's with us. He's close to us. He's the God who sent his son to actually dwell on the earth and become flesh and become as one of us. And so it should cause us as David in that psalm, that precious, beautiful Psalm 8, to just burst out in, in praise and song and joy and thanksgiving. And so as we wrap up here, um, let me just say that there are incredibly brilliant um, and just intellectually gifted people who are atheists and evolutionists. And there are also incredibly brilliant and um, intellectually gifted people who are young earth creationists. Who um, It's not a matter of, of pure mind uh, intelligence. And, um, the Proverbs talk about the, the fool. And when it's talking about the fool there, it's not talking about um, someone who's, who has a very low IQ intelligence quotient is talking about someone who is spiritually ignorant, spiritually blind, spiritually prideful, and will not not receive the truth. And so um, Al Mohler, some of you are familiar with who he is. Um, he he uh, is one of those very brilliant, uh, smart uh, people. Um, and he's, he's one who who believes in as he has studied the scripture and knows, uh, just uh, has learned um, a thing or two about science. But he answers the question, why does the universe look so old? And in a, in a, in a talk at the Ligonier Conference years ago, he addresses that question. And I'm just going to share a part of it with you. He says, in the limitations of time, it is impossible that we walk through every alternative and answer every sub-question but I want to suggest to you that the most natural understanding from the scripture of how to understand and answer that question comes to this. The universe looks old because the creator made it whole. Again, when he made Adam, Adam was not a fetus. Adam was a man. He had the appearance of a man. By our understanding, that would have required time for Adam to get old, but not by the sovereign creative power of God. He put Adam in the garden. The garden was not merely seeds. It was fertile, mature garden. The Genesis account clearly claims that God creates and makes things whole. And so whatever, whatever is, is claimed, whatever is um, taught or spoken of as the science or as um, just truth, as reality, as far as the earth being four point whatever billion years old and the universe being 14 point whatever billion years old. Um, 
He says, I would suggest to you that in our effort to be most faithful to the scriptures and most accountable to the grand narrative of the gospel, an understanding of creation in terms of 24-hour calendar days and a young earth entails far fewer complications, far fewer theological problems, and actually is the most straightforward and uncomplicated reading of the text as we come to understand God telling us how the universe came to be and what it means and why it matters, end quote. So um, let us be aware uh, of, of these things, and uh, hopefully we'll say more uh, just about that uh, next Sunday. And just I'm, I'm kind of taking it section by section here and uh, in, a, in a piecemeal manner so that we can digest it and, and um, just think things through ourselves. But I'll end by saying this. We can argue till, we'll, till we're blue in the face about you know, these, these matters of creation and young earth and old earth or evolution and creation. Um, and you know what? Sometimes it can be used as a bridge to get to the gospel. But in the end, um, all those debates and discussions and arguments are not going to win anyone into the kingdom because the Bible says that the, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Right, So Romans 1, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God unto salvation. So um, we can use these things. You know, it's, it's good to, to talk and, and try to educate ourselves and, and um, expand in our knowledge. Okay, the first thing that we need to get grounded in and knowledgeable and deep in is, is the Word of God, the text. Know why we believe what we believe, and that's why we're going through, through this and in a little bit slower manner than I had first anticipated. But um, this is why we're doing this, and uh, I want us to be truly encouraged and convicted into what God's Word says and put that as our priority and authority first. And then we fit the, the things that we, we learn from real science into that. And then, you know what, guys? Hey, we can, again, talk with um, unbelieving people uh, about just uh, the facts and about nature and about science and all of that. But it comes down to who do they think Jesus Christ is? And that's the bottom line. And the bottom line is we need to be able to share Christ, who Jesus is, and what he has done on the behalf of sinners like us. And he is the God-man. He is the one and only begotten Son of God who came to earth and was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, bearing the sins of many, all who would believe in him, taking their punishment for them and their penalty for sins that they've committed, and took them upon himself so that we could escape judgment and the wrath of God. And the Bible says, once again, that anybody who believes this, anybody who places their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, they will receive that precious, incredible, eternal, amazing promise of forgiveness of all of their sins. All of their sins forgiven, wiped away, canceled, taken away by the blood of Christ. It's the only way to get to heaven. It's the only way to be forgiven. It's the only way to receive the gift of eternal life. It's a gift. It's something you receive. It's not something you earn. And so don't, don't try to be good. Don't try to come to church because you think that coming to church is going to get you points with God or get you to heaven. Don't give to the church, money to the church, because you think that's going to earn favor with God or earn favor with the, the church and that'll get you to heaven. No, it's none of that. It's by grace you have been saved through faith and that, not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Okay? So, verse 10 says, We are his workmanship, 
created in Christ Jesus for good works. So the good works come after, right? So, so we, we do those good works out of appreciation and gratitude and love for the one who saved our eternal souls forever. And so now we live no longer for ourselves, but for him who died and rose again on our behalf. So let us uh, remember all of these things and thank God for his creation and thank God if we're new creatures in Christ and he's blessed us with that gift of grace. And if we haven't come to him yet, receive him today. Receive him today. He's the only way that you can escape God's wrath and receive his grace and favor. Turn to Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us such simple truth, and yet there's so much involved, and our finite minds can hardly handle it, but uh, we're, we're grateful, God, for your understanding and your wisdom, and even the wisdom to give us what you gave us in your word so that we can study and we can grow in our knowledge of the truth. We can know what you want us to know as you've revealed it uh, of what happened uh, even thousands of years ago. And thank you that we can refute error, that we can cling to truth, hold fast to the truth, and honor you that way, not dishonoring your word, not dishonoring your person, but loving you, thanking you for all that you've done, all that you've given to us, especially in the person and work of the one and only Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ. And we thank you most of all for him and um, in this time together. So I ask your grace and your blessing, Lord, uh, to everyone who's heard this message. And uh, may it propel us, Lord, to those good works that you've created, prepared for us beforehand so that we would walk in them. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.